So go back with me to Acts 16, and I, I want to look at uh, uh, the backstory of this church. Who, who participated? What was their strategy? What were some of the difficulties uh, that they experienced? Who were the, the, the founding members, if you, if you want to say that? And we don't see that word used, but who were the first people uh, to be a part of the Philippian church? Well, Acts 16, we'll, we'll see a little bit in Acts 15 of who is forming this church planning team. But then in Acts 16, we really see it come together as uh, God closes some doors and then opens others for the beginning of the Philippian church. So as I'm uh, you know, very familiar, for several years we've you know, been uh, recruiting and praying, you know, God, send people, Lord, that would catch the vision and embrace what you're doing in uh, Kennesaw, Marietta, Canton, Woodstock, uh, to be a part of the church planting teams. In, in previous church plants, uh, we also found it very important to uh, have others that would share the vision, not just be David and Kim's vision in their church or, or our work, uh, but it would be a joint effort. And we're very thankful. As Paul, I'm sure if he were standing here today, I'm sure Paul would uh, talk a lot more about Christ and those who worked with him than he would about himself. And that is certainly um, how we feel. God has brought a lot of people to join the effort through the years and advance the gospel of Christ. So there's a church planning team. Go back with me to Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Two of the members that we see are Paul and Silas. So Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they had already gone to, to their first missionary journey. And the Lord had used them to start uh, several churches and nucleuses of believers. And then out from Antioch, once again, Paul looks at his uh, faithful friend, one who actually stood up for Paul shortly after his conversion, when everybody else was saying, isn't this the guy that like persecuted us? Isn't this in Barnabas stood by his side and said, hey, God has, has saved him, and he's, he's proclaiming Jesus Christ. So Paul looked at Barnabas and said, hey, let's go again, and let's visit those churches, let's visit those brothers, and encourage them in the Lord. Now, it's interesting in the next few verses, we won't read all the, all the verses, but in summary, Paul and Barnabas had a little argument. There was some, there was some tension there. Barnabas wanted to take uh, his nephew, John Mark, and Paul was like, no, John Mark left last time. Remember Barnabas? So there was some tension on whether to take John Mark or not. And uh, Paul decided to you know, not allow John Mark to come along. Barnabas was, uh, again, and you can see this in part of his personality, he is one who is a discipler. He's one who is an encourager. And he says, all right, well, Paul, uh, I'm going to part ways here. And John Mark and I are going to go other places. And then Paul chose Silas to go with him. Now, I don't know all the details. I'm not sure you know, what, uh, what all was said, but I think the work was multiplied even through somewhat of an argument here. So join, uh, jump ahead to Acts 15, verses 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now it's interesting, this is just a side note, but maybe some of you remember, did John Mark, did Paul in the future ever say, yeah, John Mark is welcome? Did he ever do that, say that in the future? He did. 
He said because he's profitable for the ministry now. So Barnabas was useful in that process of restoring John Mark and helping him to grow. And, uh, but at this particular time, the Lord saw fit to use two teams instead of one to do the work, even through what we see as humans as maybe an argument. So Paul and Silas were part of the team. And then notice in Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, uh, somebody else joins. Paul also, or came also to Derby and to Lystra, a disciples there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul went in Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, Paul was a, a, an outspoken advocate that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. Even though some of the Jews were struggling with that, and even some of the Jews began to teach, no, you know, these Gentiles, they must be circumcised to really be a true believer. And Paul and, and the rest of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 says, no, that is not necessary. But what we see here is because Timothy's dad was a Greek, so he was part Gentile, part Jew, and because he was going into ministry, Timothy, I'm sure, was willing to do this, uh, which is a sacrifice, you know, as a grown man, but he was willing to do this so that he would be more effective in ministry, not so that he would be converted to Christianity. So that's interesting and important to note that. But Timothy um, has a, a Jewish mom. We don't know a lot about his dad. His dad may not have been a believer. Uh, we uh, read that his mom and his grandma were instrumental in him coming to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. I think that is really encouraging to see how God included that in Scripture. Where sometimes you have couples where uh, the, the husband may be unsaved, or maybe in another situation, you know, the wife may be unsaved. But it, in faithfulness, as you continue to teach and model and live, God can use that testimony to make a powerful dis difference in the lives of your kids. And it certainly did for Timothy. And then verse 4 of Acts 16, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. In Acts 16, as we begin even in verse 6, uh, something happens. Uh, Luke joins them. It's, it's unclear exactly when Luke joins. Luke is the author of Acts, uh, physician by, by occupation, but the Lord used him. Uh, to both write a gospel, uh, the gospel of Luke, and also uh, the book of Acts. But in Acts 6, they received the, the Macedonian call uh, to go to an area, what we know of as modern-day Greece. And in verse 10, notice with me in verse 10, it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, who? We! It's like, oh, wow, so what's the big deal about that, Pastor Dave? Well, that... That's Luke now saying, okay, now I'm part of this. So you have Paul and Silas, you have Timothy, and you have Luke. So four men that have joined together, and they want to, they want to serve the Lord. They want to strengthen churches. Um, and so this is the church planning team. Now, what is their strategic plan? Notice with me in verse 6 as we uh, back up a little bit in Acts 16 and verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, notice this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
So the first thing that we see as part of their strategic plan uh, for the church, that at this point they have no idea they're going to start in Philippi, first part of their strategic plan is a closed door. They want to go into Asia. They're excited. There's four men that are dedicated, and, and God has already used these men, and they're ready to go, but yet as they seek and pursue to go into Asia, the Holy Spirit in some form or fashion says, nope, that's a closed door. You're not going there. So let's, let's go on, see what else their, their strategy holds for them. So having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in uh, to Bithynia. But notice this. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Four men ready to go, ready to church plan. And okay, where, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go to Asia? As they pursue, try to go into Asia, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear, nope, you're not going into Asia. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's head over to Mysia, and then we'll go into Bithynia. And then once again, another closed door. The Spirit of Jesus says, nope, you're not going there either. And listen, um, we can identify with that, can't we? As you look back in your life, I'm sure you've made plans, and I'm sure you've thought, boy, I think really God wants me to do this or to do that. And then all of a sudden, a closed door. But God is still leading. And that's what we're going to see a little later on this morning. I hope that that'll be a takeaway for you, that even through closed doors, God can lead your steps. Don't get frustrated. Sometimes, you know, one of the commentators I read put it this way. Sometimes we're so busy planning the next 10 years of our life that in the next 10 days we miss golden opportunities for the gospel. Because we're looking so far in advance. We're like, no, but I want to have it all planned out. And God's saying, hey, what about the next step? What about the person next door? What about the person sitting across from you from the table uh, in the cafeteria at school or in your classroom or your your fellow athlete? What about them? So as we see here already, the strategic plan is getting is is being sh- uh, shaked up here, shaken up a little bit. But notice then as we continue on in Acts uh, sixteen and now verse eight. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." Man, this is a breakthrough. Two closed doors. And then now we see that it's very clear the Holy Spirit is saying, this is where you need to go. So I would imagine if I were one of the four men, I'd be like, yes, praise the Lord. We have clear direction. We're not, we're not pursuing any dead ends anymore. This is where God you know, wants us to go. We've received a vision even. And then in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They didn't, you know, think about it for a couple of years and like, well, we've got to re-strategize because we had planned to go into Asia. You know, we had kind of one plan. Then we we're going to go into Bithynia. Well, that didn't work out. It looks like God may be leading us into Macedonia, but we're going to, we're going to sit on it for a while. No, they're like immediately, we've concluded this is where God wants us to go. You see, there's a closed door to speak the word in Asia, Bithynia. There's an open door to go to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. Uh, this would be, end up being the first church in Europe as they advance into this area. So this would result as their obedience to this call would be the very first church in Europe. And then notice as we follow on exactly where they went specifically in that region. So verse 11. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to where? There's our city. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And Josh, if you'll flip to the next slide, this will give you a little bit of an idea. Of course, this was during the Roman Empire, so Rome was key. But then as they went into Asia Minor, you've got some of the other cities that you may recognize of Ephesus, uh, Thessalonica, which was the the key city. That was really the capital uh, city of this region. But Philippi was also a very, it says, a leading city. And then if um, if you'll go to the next slide too, Josh. So this road is part of, and it's still, still there to, to this day, but it's part of the uh, Via Ignatia, or the Ignatia Road. Part of the, the uh, road system that the Romans built that helped connect Rome to all the other different parts of their empire. And this went across the Balkan Peninsula. So this was an important city. There was a lot of people that would come through you know, this city. Uh, now, legend says, and whether it's true or not, but... A legend says that the prison that Paul would end up being thrown in is still there to visit. We'll ask Paul in the future, you know, in heaven, hey, is that really the place or not? If not, tell us about it. Maybe there's going to be a replay um, in heaven. But so this is, it's a leading city. Um, it's named after, even before that, about 350 years before Christ or B.C., uh, the, the father of Alexander the Great uh, was asked to help the city so King uh, Philip, and he named this city after himself of Philippi. How, what a novel idea. But as, you know, then as, as the Romans conquered the Greeks, um, there was, you know, some turmoil. Uh, there, some of the, the Roman soldiers even settled into this uh, after the Battle of Philippi. Uh, those that had uh, assassinated Julius Caesar uh, fought a battle and, and won and then settled in this area. But it was a leading city, and it was like a little Rome. So if you lived in Philippi, even though you were far away from from Rome as a city, you were considered to be a Roman citizen. If you were part of that that area, you didn't have to pay some of the taxes. Uh, So there were benefits of living in this Roman colony, in this leading city of Philippi. Um, Today, there's there's the modern-day village. It's not uh, so... It was abandoned, you know, at one point, and there was an earthquake that caused a lot of destruction. But there is still in Kavala, Greece, is kind of the main city in Philippoi, or you can understand the idea of Philippi, is still a village in that area. So whenever you go and, and visit that, take pictures and send back to, to all of us, right? So this is, a, this is a leading city. And so I would imagine as the four men are gathering, maybe they had staff meetings on you know, Thursday night. I don't know. I don't know how they work, but maybe these four men get together and they're like, okay, we couldn't go into Asia. We couldn't go into Bithynia, but then we had the Macedonian call. Amen? Yes. And we're here. We've made it to the area, but we're not only just in the general area of Macedonia or, or ancient Greece, but now we're in a leading city. This, I think, is a strategic place where we can really advance the gospel. Um, but it's interesting to, to see then some of the surprising converts, some of the first people that take part in this. Look with, uh, with me in Acts uh, chapter 16 and verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace the following day uh, to 
Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Then notice verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, normally at this point, it would say, and on the Sabbath day, we went into the synagogue. But that's absent from this city. So most likely, there probably weren't very many Jews, because now it says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Huge Macedonian call. I mean, a miraculous vision. Four men are together. They're ready. They go. They, they make the voyage. They've, they've landed. They've gone to the leading city. And then the first place that God kind of leads them to is a group of women by the river praying. And I, I, humanly, I would have maybe thought if I were them, is, God, is this it? I mean, you know, the day of Pentecost, there were like thousands of people that were, that were saved all at once, and you made it very clear this is where you wanted us to come. Uh, there's no synagogue even for us to go into and, and speak. We're down by the river, and is this it? But notice what happens. We see an influential businesswoman uh, come to know Christ in Acts chapter 16. It says, where, so where we supposed there was a place of prayer, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And then verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. There's a modern day uh, city in Turkey that is that place, so in Asia Minor. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. She wasn't a follower of Christ, but she was a God-fearing woman. Uh, maybe had begun to, to follow the Jewish faith. It's not, it's not real clear here, but certainly there is a reverence for her. She's not looking after pagan gods. She is a God-fearing lady. Uh, she's there with other ladies praying, and then we see what happens after that. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is extremely encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you, that where God calls you, He's going to go ahead of you, and he will work in the hearts of people around you that, to, to be able to hear the gospel, and as he is drawing people to himself. That is extremely encouraging. Because as we have closed doors and we, we kind of pursue what we see as dead ends, God's working the whole time behind the scenes, and he, he works in the heart of Lydia, who just happened to be there by God's sovereignty on that day, praying with other women, as they begin to speak, begin to talk about Jesus Christ, that says the Lord opened her heart to hear. And that is the exciting thing, that even no matter where God places us, we're there for a reason. As we share the gospel, God will work, and in his time, he'll bring forth fruit. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then verse 15. And after she was baptized in her household uh, as well, she urged us saying, if you would judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She talked us into it. She convinced us. So the four men, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, uh, Lydia, brand new convert. She was a God-fearing lady, but like Cornelius in Acts 10, didn't understand really what Jesus Christ was all about and what salvation was. But the Lord opened her heart and one of the first evidences of that, she says, come to my house. I, I want you to come. I want all of you to come and stay with me. It's also an indication that, 
that she was probably a, a fairly wealthy woman. She had a big enough house where she could invite the four of them. We're going to see a little bit later in the end of this chapter. It looks like the first, what we can kind of look back as the first church gathering happened in her house. So I want you to note uh, Tim Keller, uh, a really influential pastor, and uh, thank the Lord for all that God's used him to do. But he made some observations uh, from this passage of the diversity even of these, of these surprising converts that God brings to himself at the very beginning of the church of Philippi. This first one was a lady. It wasn't like the influential male leader of the city, but it was a lady who had gathered to pray. She was a, an influential lady. It looked like a, maybe a wealthy lady from Asia Minor. And God used the teaching of his word as Paul and Luke and the others were, were sharing the word. God used that to stir her heart and to open her heart to the gospel. Almost from like day to, from, from night to day, we see the difference then to the next person they encounter. Notice with me in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, so it sounds like maybe they're going back and forth to this place by the riverside and, and maybe others were beginning to gather as Lydia gave the, the news of, hey, come and hear, not just about God, but come and hear about God the Son, Jesus Christ. So as they were going back and forth to pray, it says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her, own, her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now it's interesting when it says they had a spirit of divination, it uses a Greek word that really is, is, has the origin or the root of python. And there's probably a, a reference there to some Greek mythology of Apollo and, and how he defeated the python. And So it's very possible that those who knew this slave girl and by demonic powers had had some success in telling the future, but yet they reference her back to this Greek mythology. It's very possible then that she was a native Greek a girl, not wealthy, she's a slave girl, so she's most likely poor. Certainly, instead of not, not a God-fear like Lydia, but she's spiritually troubled, she's oppressed. And the, the men, this church planning team, meets her and says, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, wait a minute. You may say, well, that's the right message. I mean, she's preaching the gospel. Yeah, but imagine the confusion. Imagine somebody that's come to this girl a week earlier and used and by her demonic powers have tried to see the future, but then this week she's following these guys around, these men, these church planters, and saying, hey, you know, Jesus is the way to salvation. So we see that there's some concern here and in verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now what ensued from this is some persecution of Paul and Silas for sure. And maybe this is one reason why Paul had held off. Maybe he knew as we, as you know, we come into this area uh, that this lady, this girl is bringing profit to her owner. So maybe he had put off of a direct confrontation, but eventually he says, nope, that's enough. And God used him in his power to expel the demon out of the slave girl. And then notice the response of her owners in verse 19. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Wait, where's the Macedonian call? There's a vision of the man. Come over and help us. And a miraculous, clear, open door to the gospel. The first experience with some women at the river, you know, by the river, okay, great. Lydia comes to know Christ, invites us into her home, fantastic. Now a slave girl that uh, is demon-possessed and she's coming behind us and, t- and yelling and, and maybe causing confusion to people that are hearing our message. But as we, as we help her then, now we're, we're persecuted. Now I don't know if any of those thoughts were anything that Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy may have thought. I would have been tempted to think that way for sure. God, where's the open door? Didn't you call us here? Well, where's the fruit? Where, where's all that, you, that we thought you were going to do here? Well, it continues on. As they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, it's interesting to, to note a little bit, part of the Roman uh, the empire here is if there were little gods, you know, not, not Caesar, so there was like emperor worship, but if there were other, you know, religions that didn't cause trouble, generally the Romans would just kind of overlook it because they, they wanted to keep peace, they wanted to be able to rule in the different areas. But now these, these men, these owners of the slave girl, are making accusations of listen, this is against Rome's stuff. So this is, they, they are men that need to be dealt with. Since these men are Jews, they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the strategic plan, you know, of of their second missionary journey, humanly speaking, has been hijacked, but yet we thankfully get the inspired commentary that it was God's perfect plan. The Holy Spirit said, no, not yet. Not into Asia now. Bithynia, no, not yet. But into Macedonia, yes. Leading city of Philippi, yes. Into the synagogues, no, there's not many Jews probably in this area, but down by the river, There's some ladies, and Lydia comes to know Christ, wealthy woman, influential, um, from Asia Minor. Then the next girl is a slave girl, oppressed, spiritually troubled, um, taken advantage of by by her owners. But yet, once again, this is someone that God puts in their path. Whether this slave girl genuinely accepted Christ or not, it's not clear in this passage, but it's very possible that she did as they expelled the demons, and she certainly was blessed by their compassion on her. God used teaching of God's word with Lydia to really move in her heart, to open her heart to the gospel. God used uh, a compassionate work here as they, uh, they relieved her of the demon, expelled the demon out of her, and it's very possible, and again, we won't know until we get to heaven, but it's very possible that this slave girl was the second, or one of, Lydia's household was saved, so it wouldn't be the second, but was one of the first uh, to be converted in this Philippian church. Then we come to verse 25. 
We also see here a, a jailer, probably, probably middle class. He's got a stable job. Most likely a Roman citizen. As I mean, he's responsible for keeping charge of the prison. We see in, in a little bit that he is, he's not a God-fearer like Lydia. He's not praying. Um, he's not necessarily spiritually troubled like the slave girl. He's kind of indifferent. In fact, when Paul and Silas you know, were first thrown into prison, and, and we'll see in a minute here that they were singing praises, and the jailer doesn't really comment on that, at least in our text here. He doesn't, it seems to be some indifference there to, to God you know, around him. But yet, God had a special plan, and we see in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners, this is really cool, were listening to them. Just observing, just seeing, hey, these are men. Now, where are Luke and Timothy? I don't know. Maybe Luke and Timothy, you know, maybe they weren't exactly with Paul and Silas, and so maybe they were able to get away and they were trying to seek help. Maybe they went back to Lydia and to those initial believers and said, listen, we've got to pray. Um, our coworkers are, have been thrown into to jail and they're being persecuted. I don't know exactly where Luke and Timothy are at this point, but Paul and Silas they're, they've been beaten. This is, no, this is no fun fun game here. They've been beaten. They're in jail, and they're praising God. They're singing, and the prisoners are listening to them. Their example, their selfless example, uh, will speak volumes not only to the other prisoners around them, but to the jailer himself. First, it seems like maybe he's indifferent, but then God literally rocks his world. Let's continue on as we see here. It says, um, and immediately, well, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. I don't think the Roman government was very, I don't think they were a very accommodating group of people. I think, the, I think the jailer very well knew here, if these prisoners escape, and if I'm, if I'm still alive, the Roman government's going to kill me. Because I, I've not kept the prisoners, I've not done my duty as a guard. So as God literally rocks his world through the earthquake, but he not only does that, he begins to really rock his heart and move in and show him these men, Philippian jailer. We don't even have a name. We don't have a name for the slave girl either. We don't have a name for this guy, but this Philippian jailer began to see these men are different. So what happens? And the jailer called for what well, says um, in verse 29, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Now maybe the other prisoners were like, Paul, shut up. This is our chance, man. Let's get out. Run. And Paul says, no, 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 don't kill yourself. We're, st we're still here. Uh, what? I don't know that I would have done that. I think I would have been like, man, God has given us another open door. This time, not to Macedonia, but out of this jail cell. And let's get with it. He said, no, no, don't, don't kill yourself, man. We are all here. It's a very selfless example. He's looking at this Philippian jailer. And thankfully, unlike maybe me and maybe some of you, is thinking a lot more about the eternal destiny of his soul than exactly where Paul is at the moment. And see, we see what happens next. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in. 
and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He had been indifferent, but God was moving in his heart and used Paul and Silas' example, a selfless example, for him to come to the point where he saw Jesus drawing him and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You in your household. Once again, a, a succinct and clear nutshell of the gospel. What do I have to do to be saved? What does anybody have to be, do to be saved? Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. He had already shown that as part of that belief, he was turning from his ways as an indifferent, maybe even violent jailer to someone who fell down on his knees before Paul and Silas. They weren't gods, but he saw a, a, a selfless example. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, hey, simply believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And we follow on. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, you and your household. And then verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So just like Lydia's household uh, heard the word, heard the gospel, and were saved, and then followed the Lord in believer's baptism, we see that the jailer, the same thing. The, the summary of the gospel was believe, and his whole household believed, and they also identified with Christ and said, we want to publicly, we want to show, yes, through baptism, that we are part of God's new family. Then he brought them up into his house, verse 34, and set food before them. Man, this is quite different. In one moment, they're, they're in the inner prison. They're being guarded. They've been beaten. But now Paul and Silas are gloriously rescued from that. They're able to lead this Philippian jailer and his household to Christ. And next thing they know, they see themselves sitting around a table and sharing food with brand new believers. This was not part of their strategy, but it was God's strategy, right? So God's working behind the scenes, and he's using these men as they, as they just follow. They're just following Christ. They're following the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit closes the door, they go somewhere else. And when he opens, they obey. And even when it doesn't seem like it's following their plan, they continue. They continue. And you and I need to do the same. God wants us to learn from them. And it's, Then he brought them up to his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He didn't rejoice because he had been given a new house. He didn't rejoice because he had been healed of a sickness. But he rejoiced because of the inner transformation that God had done in his heart. Because now he believed in God. Now he believed in Jesus Christ. So it's really interesting as we see, you know, this the, in the very beginning of the Philippian church, we already see diversity in a lot of different ways. We see different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. We see an influential, apparently wealthy businesswoman. We see a poor and oppressed slave girl. We see this probably middle class uh, jailer, Roman. But God is beginning to form his new church here in Philippi. Jump ahead to Acts chapter 16 in the end of the chapter, verse 40. Maybe at home you can read the rest of the passage, but basically, you know, they come to Paul the next day and he says, okay. You know, you and Silas can go now. And Paul says, 
Mm, no, not quite that easy. Um, we're Roman citizens, and you, like, treated us wrongly. So after they kind of said, hey, you know, I'm sorry, okay, you, now please go. Notice what, what happens and where they go first in verse 40. So they went out. Well, let's read verse 39 because I, I like to read that they did have to apologize. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. You know, that, that would have been an interesting thing to watch. So they went out of the prison and visited who? Lydia. Hmm, interesting. So maybe, no, their first encounter wasn't with what they may have imagined to be a, an influential male religious leader that came to know Christ, but they came to encounter the, the very person that God wanted them to meet first, and that was Lydia. And when Lydia and, house, and her household accepted Christ as their Savior, they were gloriously transformed. And even when Paul and Silas were leaving prison, Lydia says, our house is open. You're welcome in. She didn't say, hey, Paul, can you kind of keep a di your distance for a while? I mean, you just came out of prison, dude. So we, we, we really don't want to be kind of connected with you that closely. You know, we're still new kind of in this, in this falling Christ thing. They said, no, come. Our house is open. But notice also who else is there in verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the who? Now, could this be Luke and Timothy? Yeah, I think they were probably there. But I think maybe the jailer's household might have been there. And I think maybe even, I mean, it's plural here, so it's hard to know. Again, we won't know until we get to heaven. But there may even already be new and additional believers. The very beginning of the Philippian church, there's persecution around. There's, you know, there's accusations of these men are doing things against the Roman customs. It's unlawful. Stirring up strife, and they're, they're taking away our profit, in fact, because of the slave girl. But Lydia, her household, the Philippian jailer, his household, maybe the slave girl, and probably other new believers at the very first gathering of the Philippian church. These are the surprising converts in the first church core team. Isn't that neat? How God works in a way that we cannot Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy, if they had sat down and had a planning session for a month, they could not have scheduled out and said, well, you know, God's going to do this because we strategized and this method works. I've got a prison ministry that's really going to work in Philippi. Nope. They just obey step by step. And as they face even great persecution, as they face closed doors, they continue to look to the Holy Spirit. They continue to look to Jesus Christ. And God uses them and helps them to take every next step. May God help us to do the same. Now, what are some of the big ideas? What are some of the big ideas? We're going to go through the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians in the weeks to come. And we'll look at a lot of the verses. But there's some big ideas that I, I hope that you'll take away. One of the first things is... Look for the Holy Spirit's leading both through closed doors and open doors. So the question of this is, how should the backstory of Philippians affect my story? It may be a temptation to look at Philippians and look in Acts 16 and go, wow, this is a, that's kind of cool, Pastor David. Thank you for the little neat map and kind of the, the, arch, you know, the archaeological finds. This is a neat little history lesson. No, it's not just a history lesson of the past. But the, the book of Philippians really is a pathway to a, a joyful future in Christ. And so how can the backstory affect my story? Well, first of all, 
I hope that you and I will recognize that God works oftentimes through closed doors and open doors. As Paul looked back at his life, how closely do you think his original plan and how he thought things were going to work out, how closely did actually things happen? I would venture to say probably not so close. Several months back, and I've mentioned this book several times, um, it is, I recommend this to every family and individual. But Daring Devotion, uh, written by a friend of mine, uh, Matt Conrad, a uh, missionary in, in Hong Kong, uh, has already faced a lot of hardships with extreme you know, lockdowns and things like that, uh, but it's been faithful. And uh, he put together a 31-day journey, it says, with those who lived God's promises. But you know what we noticed as we read those 31 stories? Time and time again, it would mention their name and says, it would say something like, they originally planned to go to this area, or they were leading and they were going to this country, but God redirected and sent them to here or to there. Or, and we saw all the, throughout these stories as well, even as we see in Scripture, God often will close doors, but then will open others and open others, just like he did with these men here. God's going to do the same for you. So as we have plans, as we make plans, as we think, no, I think God's doing this, be ready to listen to the Holy Spirit and ready to follow even when he closes doors. So look for the Holy Spirit's both through closed doors and open doors. But then secondly, prepare to suffer for Christ to fulfill his calling for your life. Ephesians 6.12 says that we, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against what? principalities, powers that we don't see, powers of darkness. This is spiritual warfare, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't a walk in the playground. This isn't something that we can just, hey, man, this is great, and the gospel's always you know, just easy, and there's a lot of blessings in the gospel, and I'm so thankful that I can be a follower of Jesus Christ. But there are also going to be times, and you can count on it, that if you follow Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you will experience some suffering. It's going to happen. And it's even as clear as God's call was on the life of these four men and opened the door, and man, they had a vision of exactly where they were to go, there were still great hardships being beaten being thrown into jail, but yet they were ready because like the disciples that Jesus had, had uh, challenged even before during his ministry, says, you know, if you're going to be a true disciple, you have to take up a cross. He doesn't say go look for comfort. It says take up a cross. So that's something that we also need to prepare is to suffer for Christ to fulfill his calling for your life. Thirdly, know that where God calls you to serve him, he will go ahead of you and will work in hearts of those within your circles of influence. Just curious, how many of you moved, came to the Atlanta, metro Atlanta area for work or for education? Would you raise your hand? You came to the metro Atlanta area primarily for work or for education? Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. All right, look around. Real quick, look around. All right, that's cool. Now, why is, why is that interesting? Well, I see... And I'm really not trying to read all this into Acts 16, but I'm trying to make some practical applications. Lydia was a seller of purple. She came from Thyatira, modern-day Turkey. She's in Philippi now. She's there partly maybe for business, but God took her there to accept Christ. 
And as Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas found her on the riverside, actually God uh, made her path cross theirs. You and I are going to cross people in Metro Atlanta that have come here for work. They've come here for education. And will we be ready? Are we going to take the next step and say, hey, you know, welcome to Georgia, first of all. But most importantly, whether you get your degree here, whether you graduate with an undergraduate or a PhD, or whether you get a job promotion, or whether you love, you know, the Atlanta Braves or whatever it may be, you're here in Metro Atlanta. And I believe in part you're here because if you don't know Christ, that God's put us together so I can share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. I pray that you'll see that in your circles of influence, God is already ahead of the game. And he's bringing people into your midst. It's not a a surprise. It's not a coincidence. But God's bringing people into your path so that as you have opportunity, you can just clearly share with them, this is the purpose of my life. And God wants to save you and give you a whole new meaning. And you may go out of Atlanta, maybe, yes, with a better degree. You might go off with a better job. But more than that, You could potentially leave Atlanta one day with Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now, beyond that, we're going to see people here in Metro Atlanta that are spiritually oppressed. See the slave girl in Acts 16? You're going to come across people that they are enslaved to addictions. And they are troubled. Now, our, our choice will be this. Oh, no, 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 but God's called me to those who've come here for education, for work, for sports, whatever it may be. Or will you respond and say, God, if you put this person on my path, then Lord, help me to obey also. Help me not to be a respecter of persons. But God, just like you looked upon the multitude and had compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd, and just as Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke looked upon this slave girl and had compassion on her, God, help me to have compassion on those that come across my path who are spiritually troubled. They may not have a whole lot of financial gain to offer. They may not have a whole lot of uh, of friendship benefits initially that we see, but yet God is working already ahead of us and is drawing people to himself for reasons that we can never imagine. And in the future, people like the slave girl can bless us in ways, again, that we could never imagine and never understand. And we've seen that true in our life. It's been phenomenal. To see sometimes people that, man, they were so spiritually troubled. And sometimes you begin to wonder, is there hope? Could this person truly be saved? But then to see God do the work, and then later, that person who is so spiritually troubled come across and come out and, and encourage us and sometimes even challenge us spiritually and go, wow, the person's very different. Not because of me, not because of the church, but because of what God did in their life. Now, we're going to come across even more people probably that are just going to be like the Philippian jailer. Indifferent, kind of status quo, middle class. They may not openly speak out against your faith. They may not openly speak out against One Hope Church, but they could care less about what you think initially. They don't really care that you, where you go on Sundays. They probably even think it's silly. You, go, you do what on Sunday morning? You go and you listen to this guy speak? Every, and you even give money sometimes? What, what's up with that? But yet as God puts people on our path, and he's working in their hearts, and through our example, through tough times, through the good times, as they begin to see, boy, that college student's different. That middle school student is different. That dad is different. That wife is different. 
And the example will speak volumes. Turn with me as we try to draw this to a close here. Return with me to 1 Peter. First Peter Well, I'm going to summarize it because I cannot I don't see the reference, but basically Jesus, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling the wives, if you have an unsaved husband, by your very conduct, God can use you to draw people, to draw your unsaved husbands to himself. We see even through the Gospels that as we you know, do good deeds, as we do good works for, for Christ, it says that they will see the, that and glorify God in heaven. May that be our passion. God, help us to, 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 to work, help us to do things so that people, as they see our example, that they will be changed, that they will, they'll see the difference that Jesus Christ makes in us. 3-1, can you read it? Amen. You may not have an unsaved husband or an unsaved wife, but you've got a lot of unsaved people around you that like the prisoners in that jail cell. Man, they are watching. They're watching. They're listening to what you say. They watch how you act. They watch how you're a worker. They watch how you're a student. And by our example, I pray that we will show a difference and that we'll have some people come and say, they, and they may not say it, hey, sirs, what must I do to be saved? But they may come and ask things like, you know, you're different. Why are you different? How can you be happy? You just got some bad news about your health. You just lost a job. How can you be happy? How can you continue on? How can you, and we can say, man, I I am so glad you asked the question. And the reason is because Jesus Christ is my hope. He's the one that gives me purpose in life. How is Philippians relevant to my story? Let's finish there. We're going to go into Lord willing, the weeks to come as we study through uh, you know, this, this letter. And one of the commentators put it kind of in summary. It's only four chapters, 104 verses, and about two and a half pages in most Bibles. But as he puts it, as he said it, there's gold here. There's a lot of things throughout the letter of Philippians that can challenge us greatly. First of all, we say, you know, one of the questions that we ask and chose our relevance, is it easy to live for Christ in our world today? What do you think? Is it easy? Is the, the culture around us conducive to living a passionate life for Jesus Christ? Not at all. But yet Philippians 4.4 4 was able to say, even while he was in, in prison, Paul was able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. He wasn't speaking from a a pastor's retreat. He wasn't speaking, you know, after he came off of cloud nine, you know, speaking at a big group. No, he is in prison. Once again, he was already thrown in prison at the beginning of the the church in Philippi, 10 years earlier. Now, as he writes to the Philippian church, probably in Rome, he's probably in imprisonment in Rome, and he says, you can still rejoice. And if I can rejoice in the Lord always, then you can too. So it's not easy to live for Christ but we can rejoice in him. Second question, what is life all about, really? What is it all about? What is my purpose here? 
I've shared this with some of you, but I'll never forget one of the first uh, Bible studies we had in, in our home in Junjai. And we had, uh, some of you even met Wilson, one of the first services of One Hope when he was here in the States visiting. And Wilson was there in that service. And I asked that night, I said, what is our purpose for life? And Wilson got kind of his little sheepish grin. And after a few seconds, he says, I have no idea. And what, how cool it was a few months later to see Wilson and Cynthia come to know Jesus Christ at our supper table. And today, he's in heaven because he discovered, as Paul did, what's the purpose of our life? Well, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is the purpose of my life. It's not about what I can gain materially. It's not about what I can gain educationally. But it's about what I can gain for Jesus Christ. Okay, great. You say, I know in my head how, you know, that I exist to live for Christ, but how can I be happy? <laughs> I would like to be happy, Pastor David. I mean, you talk about a cross and you talk about suffering, but I, I, I would enjoy some happiness. Well, how can I be happy? Some think, well, if I have enough faith, Jesus will take my struggles away. Some think, well, if I'm faithful enough, you know, Christ will just turn all my circumstances around, and that's why there's, there's whole movements that are started of the prosperity gospel and even phrases like, stop the suffering. You know, believe in Jesus, stop the suffering. No, actually, Jesus suffered quite a bit. There's, there's much joy, don't get me wrong. And there's nothing wrong with laughing. There's nothing wrong with having a good time as Christians. And I hope we're going to have a lot of good times as a One Hope Church family. But there's also going to be tough times. So how can I be happy in that? Well, Philippians 4.11 says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. Yes, we need to explore this letter more because it's hard for us, even in the spirit of thanksgiving, to be truly happy. But yet Paul, and through the Philippian letter and through the Holy Spirit, tells us the secret. Lastly, how can we live in peace as a couple, as a family, as a church? If I could invent like this pill or maybe even a spray, that'd be even a little easier, that you could just spray on yourself, you know, when you're not being a peacemaker. And then even uh, what I would like as a parent, you could just spray like on your children when they're not being a peacemaker. You know, you've seen some people, don't get me wrong, I don't think my children are dogs, but some people, you know, they spray little water bottles when they're trying to correct their dogs. Wouldn't it be cool if we had like this peacemaker spray and you could just miraculously go, and they just go, oh. Oh, yes, how can I serve you? Well, what kind of, oh, so how can we live in peace? You, you, you're, you buy the first bottle, amen. How can we live in peace as a couple? Man, pastor, we, we argue over the, the stupidest, not a great English word, we argue over the stupidest things in life. Yeah, because we're human. That's our tendency. How can we live in peace as a couple? How can we live in peace as a family? I mean, you know, you see these, these photos and these posts of, you know, Thanksgiving dinners and even of family pictures. You know as well as I do that behind most of those posts, there's like, son, stop doing that. Quit kicking your sister. Smile. You know, you got all these things so you can get that perfect picture and it just looks like, oh, wow, what a beautiful family. But that rarely happens because we're sinners. How do we live in peace as a church? We're going to see in the letter of Philippians, there were two prominent women in the church 
who Paul says, these aren't just, you know, attenders that just every once in a while kind of show up and, you know. No, these are women who, from the beginning, have been a part of the battle of faith. But then he calls upon some of the other leaders and says, listen, help them live in unity. Help those two ladies live in unity. How can we live in peace as a church? Well, look with me in Philippians 2, 4, and 5 as we close this morning. Philippians chapter 2, and verses 4 and 5. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, or in, or in essence, embrace these attitudes of Christ. Embrace this mindset of Jesus Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, is again not just a history lesson of the past, but this is a pathway that will help us to live a joyful and a happy future as we understand, yes, this is a very relevant book for me. Would you close your eyes by your heads as we finish this morning?